You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. True crime fans, have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers! Hi, I'm Johanna from Austria. And I'm Annie from the U.S., and you just heard the ladies from Wine and Crime. I love their accents. They are great. And not only is their podcast really entertaining, they are also so helpful to fellow podcasters. When we started out, they were the first well-known podcast to run our promo and help us build our audience. So I think these ladies are absolutely lovely. Thank you. Yeah, we can't tell them how much we appreciate that. But not only the Wine and Crime ladies are amazing, it's also all of our listeners. You support us with your reviews, your messages, you share our episodes. Thanks so much to each and every one of you. We really mm. appreciate everything that you do for us. And we just, we have the best listeners. We're so lucky and so grateful. And of course, a special shout out goes out to our newest Patreon members. They are Nicole Lundquist, Constance Shea. I like the name Constance and Gordana Baljax, which I think I've gotten your last name wrong, but I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Thank you so much, though. Uh, we really, we are so grateful. Yeah, we wouldn't make this podcast without every single one of you, because what would be the point? We'd probably just talk to each other over Skype. Yeah, that's right. Which is basically the same what we're doing it's now. Pretty much. <laughs> so if you want to know how you can become a patron and what it entails, we will tell you everything about it in the end of this episode. Yes, because now it's time for Johanna to tell us another Austrian murder. And I'm not going to lie, these are my favorites. So spooky fuckery season is over, but no worries. On Sunday, we celebrated All Saints Day, and on Monday was All Souls Day, and November here is a very gloomy month with lots of fog, and it's rather morbid. Uh, for Catholics, the month starts, as I said, with All Saints and All Souls Day, so we are remembering the dead. And for the Evangelicals, the month ends with remembering the dead with the so-called Eternity Sunday. So while October was for all things creepy and paranormal, I'd say November is a month for talking about death. Yes. Uh, so Paul and I, our wedding anniversary is October 29, which, uh, you know, I've told you I have funny things with numbers, but I first met my biological mother a few years ago and we actually have the exact same wedding anniversary. So it's crazy. I thought that was funny. But my point <laughs> is that I really have been wanting to go to Mexico. Uh, we technically stopped in Ensenada and loved it, but I'm not sure that really counts as visiting Mexico. So I'd love, to, we really want to go to some of the areas that my husband's family are from. And I'd love to go for Day of the Dead, you know, as an anniversary trip. Mm. And that's how I'm bringing it right back around to why I told you this story. <laughs> and I think November, it does feel like a month of death, doesn't it? Because it's like, everything is dying, everything's going dormant, all the leaves are off the trees. Well, for us, at least in our climate, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. Yeah. Tell me everything. Today I want to tell you about the horrible murder of Ilse Moschner. 
Unfortunately, like so often in this era, I couldn't find too much information, especially on the young woman who fell victim to this horrible crime. But I'll tell you everything I found. And for this episode, I have to especially credit a Viennese podcast. It's called Wiener Blut. It's an Austrian podcast, as you might have guessed from the name. So it's in German. But if you want to learn German or if you know a little bit German, please check them out. They do an amazing job, very thorough research. I learned about them when one of our listeners wrote to me, did you know that this podcast, they used us or one of our episodes as their sources our episode about the Bleistift murder. So now it's my turn to return that favor because I did something I usually don't do. I listen to a podcast about a topic I'm working on beforehand. I normally never do that because I'm I'm always worried about involuntary plagiarism. And I think you fear the same, right? You understand me. <sighs> yes, yeah. I am so terrified that I'll unintentionally parrot something I heard mm -hmm. in a podcast. I do it all the time. I do it with vocal intonation. I'm just a parrot. And so I've kind of stopped listening. Although when I have time, I'll sometimes listen after I've typed up all my notes. Typed up all my notes like I'm sitting here in front of my old typewriter. Ding! <laughs> um, but, you know, just to make sure, just to make sure I didn't miss anything. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. do, do I have everything? Just, you just want to make sure you didn't miss some big thing. You forgot to write it yeah. down. I don't know. But yeah, I totally know what you mean. So for this episode, there's just so little available. Uh, and I checked and my sources that I used are pretty much the sources the Wiener Blut podcast used. So yeah. good. I also got the book, uh, the podcast posse from Wiener Blut has in their credits. I haven't read it yet, but it's uh, called Mord in Wien by Helga Schimmer. I think it's going to be useful for other other episodes as well. Sure. And as always, you will find the sources in our Facebook group. And if I ever find the time to update our webpage, you will also <laughs> find our sources there. We're working on it. You all should know how much Johanna, Johanna does everything for this podcast. She's the real MVP. So... You are the soul and the heart of the podcast. I'm, I'm just doing the technical I am thing. not. I am yeah, a yeah, font are. of weird facts. And um, <laughs> yeah, that's about it. But uh, it is funny, isn't it? Sometimes you will find, so now I'll sometimes read like the Wikipedia article and it's like, oh, they have all the same sources I have because yeah. that's, there's only four sources and everybody's yeah, using yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> Are there exactly. any warnings today? Anything? It's a very horrible crime. It involves uh, rape. There's a lot of bad stuff in there, actually. Okay. It's all not, right. yeah, it's not. It's a bad it's one. It's tough. Yeah. It's a bad one, yeah. Okay. So this all takes place in January of 1960. The year was not even two weeks old. And so I wondered if people might have been excited for a new year to start. Or were they just as fed up with 1959 as we are with 2020? <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up the most important things that happened in 1959. You know, mm -hmm. we like to set the scene a little bit. Yeah, this is good. I like this. So what happened in 1959? Uh, Fidel Castro assumes power in Cuba. Nikita Khrushchev visits the US and meets President Eisenhower at Camp David. Alaska and Hawaii become state number 49 and state number 50 of the United States of America. <laughs> Here comes a bummer. Switzerland votes against women's right to vote. And it was not even close. There were over 650,000 votes against it and only 322,000 votes for it. Wow. Now I know. You all might wonder, when did women get the right to vote in Switzerland? So uh, that was in 1971. <laughs> Oof. Wow. Mm. Also in 1959, the day the music died, Buddy Holly, Richie Wellens and the big bopper J.P. Richardson, they die in a plane crash. Female members of the US troops stationed in West Berlin are prohibited from appearing in public in jeans, shorts or tight bathing suits. It's also interesting. As opposed to those real... Roomy loose-fitting bathing suits. <laughs> <laughs> bathing bags. Bathing costumes. But, I mean, kind of now by definition, this is the 60s, so it's not like people were wearing their pantaloons and their petticoats anymore. But <laughs> if, if a bathing suit's not sufficiently tight in the right places, then you got, yeah. you got problems. Yeah. All right. The Pentagon goes up in flames. Did you know that? That happened in 1959. Absolutely no idea. Frank Lloyd Wright and Cecil B. DeMille die in 1959. Some Like It Hot, Ben Hur, North the Northwest and Anatomy of a Murder are released in that year. So, good year for film. Cinephils. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, there's also a lot of race-based stuff going on between yeah. the USA and the USSR. <laughs> the Malpasse Dam disaster kills 421 people in Thailand, France. Oh, wow. Britain recognizes Cyprus' autonomy and Singapore gains independence. Mm, that's a good one. That was a good one. Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, he wants to rekindle a positive relationship with Germany and doesn't want to blame the newest generation for the crimes of the Third Reich. Smart. 4.3 billion people are living on this planet in 1959 compared to 7.8 only 60 years later. Interesting, right? Yeah, too many people. So I'd say 1959 was a mixed year. Lots of sad things happened, but definitely also lots of good and positive stuff going on. And I'm pretty sure people were were hopeful for 1960. It was definitely not the clusterfuck that 2020 turned out to be. <laughs> I'm sure people were probably rather hopeful for 1960. Well, listen, to be fair... We had some hopes for 2020 <laughs> ourselves. We were younger then, more defined eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to our New Year's episode. I it's know. sad now, in retrospect. <laughs> I don't want to do it. My hair was all one color then. So it was 11th of January 1960, not even noon yet, and a retired woman wandered through the streets of the 7th and 8th district. She's known to rummage through the trash cans out on the streets, looking for stuff she can either use herself or sell to supplement her little retirement money. She finds some bones with some meat still on it, wrapped up in paper, and she takes the bundle with her, thinking of the dog of a scrap dealer she knows. So she brings the bones to the junkyard, and according to a newspaper article, the scrap dealer thinks, you know, these are beef bones, and she gives the bones to her dog. And the dog is super happy chewing away on his bones when some customers come along and they look at the bones and they don't think that these are beef bones. They're like, listen, we don't mean to alarm you, but uh, could it be? Could it be that these are maybe human bones? Oh. So the junkyard owner takes the bones from the dog. <laughs> uh, and contacts the police and they come take the bones and have a forensic expert look at it and the doctor confirms what most of them already suspect the bones found in the trash can wrapped up in paper are indeed human bones oh no this is it's not a good start no i'm a little bit glad so i didn't really feel well enough to get opus a Halloween costume for his first Halloween, but we do have this absolutely enormous bone. And I was going to put a sock and a shoe on one end of it and give it to him just to take some pictures with, but now I'm glad I didn't because it feels like it would have been in more taste. Oh, this is terrible. That poor woman, that poor dog. Everybody. 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 Oh. So to be exact, the bones, uh, they are parts of a femur and parts of a lower leg, and they belong to a young woman. Ugh. And the lines of breakage indicate that the bones had been worked on with a saw at first and followed by an axe. Okay, so I'm guessing at this point they started to look for more body parts? Yeah, so they asked the woman who had found the bones to take them to the exact trash can, which of course she does, and the police starts to look for more body parts and other evidence. And do they find much? Yeah, so what happened? They look through all the trash cans in the area and not only the trash cans that are out on the streets, but also the ones in the houses. Now, I don't know if you have apartment houses that are set up uh, similar to the ones we have here, but most of the time in those houses in Vienna, you know, the houses that were built sometime around 1900, you have inner courtyards. Mm -hmm. And the residents of the house will often park their bicycle there or their pram or whatever. You mostly find the trash cans for the whole building there. Yeah, sure. So, of course, the police also goes and looks into all these trash cans in the house. And finally, in the inner courtyard of a house in the Florianegasse, I know the exact number, but I don't want to name name it because I don't want to encourage the looky-loos here. No, that's smart. I do the same. I omit exact addresses as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why. But there's a Peruvian restaurant nearby, so you can go visit a Peruvian restaurant instead after the lockdown, of course. Yes. So, in a courtyard, in a house, in the Florianegasse, in some trash cans, they find more body parts and the head. Okay. So now they're like, hey, uh, it's probably a good idea to check this house a little bit more closely. Just a bit. 
Mm, so they get the, I guess you'd call him the janitor or the handyman of the building, you know, the mm -hmm. person who lives in the building and takes care of all the minor problems like broken light bulb and clocked train and something like that, right? Yeah, like the superintendent or the manager, mm. lots of words for it, same thing. Yeah. Dad. But it's okay if I call him a janitor, <laughs> right? It's Yeah, I don't think janitor is, yeah, yeah. So the janitor's name is Johan Rogac, and Rogac was originally from Carinthia, you know, one of our nine states here in Austria. But he had moved to Vienna only a year ago in early 1959, just the year my dad was born. Now, this Johan Rogac was living in the house in an apartment with a woman named Paula. I know her last name, I'm not going to name it because it doesn't really matter. So Paula, sure. we call her Paula, yeah? And Paula's son. It's a little bit hard to see if Paula and Johan were actually in a relationship or if they were roommates or a combination of both. Mm. But he lived there with the woman and her son, okay? So the police gets the handyman Rogac and he's acting kind of suspicious. Doesn't he seem to be a bit nervous, a little bit? And when the police asks him to show them the basement, he seems to be very reluctant. Obviously, the police doesn't give a fuck about that, so right. they start to search the basement. Usually, every apartment in an apartment building has a room or a small unit in the basement that can be locked. You can store your skis and your luggage or your winter tires, whatever. Yeah, Mostly, you fill your mm -hmm. basement unit with all the nonsense you really don't need, <laughs> but you don't want to throw it away and then when you move out of course you curse your past self because now you have to clean out your basement and you don't just throw it out no you schlep it over to your next apartment where you store it again which is all Marie Kondo's worst nightmare how dare you attack me in this manner <laughs> yeah I we have an entire room full of boxes still from the move six years ago in the main mm -hmm. level and then a basement full of boxes that we need to we thought we'd have a really big clean out in a in a like a yard sale like a tag sale this year but COVID had other plans so yeah it's all COVID's uh, it's all fault. COVID's fault <laughs> definitely I'm not a hoarder I don't have any possums all right and the next problem is that in those old buildings, like the ones I often used to live, because hello, high ceiling and double wing doors, oh, yeah. uh, the basement is always a bit humid and smells a bit moldy and musty. So the things you store down there, they will be ruined anyway. But still, you don't throw them away. Yeah. Sorry for digressing. No, no. Now I'm, I'm worried about what's been in my basement for the last 20 <laughs> years. I'm going to find out soon. All right. So they searched the basement. Yes, the police look through the basement units and the laundry room and they find blood, flesh, some blood-stained tools and I think uh, more body parts. Oh boy, that's that's terrible. That's not good news. Mm. So pretty quickly they figure out that 27-year-old Johan Rogac is their number one suspect because not only did he behave very oddly, he also is the one person who has access to all the rooms, yeah? Um, I think it was also his tools, but don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% certain. Sure, sure. And then the neighbors are like, huh, you know what? Now that I think of it, Paula hasn't been around for three days now. Last time we saw her and her son was on 8th of January. So at first, police and the neighbors believe that the murdered woman is Paula, but they have the head, so they can very quickly eliminate her as the victim. And as far as I could find out, Paula had just been gone to visit a uh, family for a couple of days. I think it was her grandma in Lower Austria. Okay. So, who's the victim? Due to the excellent work of a female police officer by the name of Rosina Baumschlager, the body can be soon identified. Oh, that's excellent. Nice job, Rosina. All right, so were there, were there a lot of female police officers working in Vienna in the 1960s? Well, you need to know that society in the 1960s in Austria was still extremely, extremely conservative. I think I mentioned that so many times already, right? Yeah. Uh, even today, statistics say that in Austria, women make up 13% of the police force. And that's for whole Austria. In Vienna, the number is definitely higher. I know that because I actually did read up on it because I was intrigued by the fact that this police officer, Rosina Baumschlager, was honored by the head of the Viennese police on 30th of January 1960 for her excellent work in this case. So, of course, I needed to know how common was it for a woman to work in the police mm. at that time. Yeah, you fell down a rabbit hole. <laughs> I learned from you. <laughs> yeah, it's how it happens. That's that's how it starts. 
So here's what I found. The first women who got the same education, equal pay, equal ranking and equal equipment as their male colleagues started to work in Austria in 1991. 1991. So that's merely 30 years ago, right? Wow. Also, Jesus, 1991 was 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Of course, before that, there were already women working for the police, yeah, but they were not armed and they mostly were used as meter maids and for situations in criminal investigations when it was easier and or more suitable for a woman to do the interrogation, for example, in sexual abuse cases or to talk to victims, victims of domestic violence, right? Sure, yeah. So I guess that's why Rosina Baumschlager was even there working the case. And so she ended up honored for the work she did on this case. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And thanks to Rosina, they find out that the victim is 18-year-old Ilse Moschner. Ilse was studying sports. She lived in the 16th district, which is Ottakring. And I didn't find too much information on Ilse, but I know she was a member of the SDJ, the Sudeten Deutsche Jugend, which is the Sudeten German Youth. The Sudeten Germans were a German ethnic group living in Bohemia and Moravia. They got expelled after World War II and had to find refuge in Germany and Austria, among other countries. I'm not sure I've ever even heard of Sudeten Germans. Really? Yeah, before it's now. It's a super, super big part of our history here. That's, I'm sure my dad knows all about it, but if I read about it, I've, I've forgotten. So now I'll have to look up on it. Uh, it's not that important to the case. Okay. It's just... Yeah. It's just this tiny little snippet I found of her life. And of course. Paints a little bit of a picture about her, yeah. It's always hard when they're old, you know, when they're yeah. old like this and you're so desperate for anything to sort of feel like you remember who they were. So Ilse was roughly three years old when the war had ended, yeah. And probably she came from Bohemia from a Sudeten German family, because she became a member of the Austrian branch of the SDG, SDJ right after it was founded. And in the magazine Sudeten Post from 23rd of January 1960, they published a heartfelt obituary for Ilse. And that's how I found out, because I read the obituary, right? Oh, okay. And there they talk about her participation in summer camps and that she was one of the most active members, how she was their best skier, quote, with her good mood and her sense of humor, she helped to make all of our events a success, end quote. The obit also mentions that on 7th of January, she attended the first meeting of 1960 and how much fun they had had and how she can never be replaced. Uh, she sounds like a lovely young woman. She definitely was striving and ambitious, but also eager to help. I'm very certain she's still missed by those who knew and loved her. Of course. Yeah. Ilse was not only a student and an active member of her community. To make some money, she worked for an insurance company, and friends told the newspaper that she was saving money for a ball gown for the upcoming ball season, which is very sad. Oh, it's incredibly sad. And, um... I don't want to seem, I feel like I keep saying things that might seem really callous in this episode or shallow, but I think like a part of my younger self, well, who am I kidding? A part of myself <laughs> just gave just a small sigh about the, f just when you said the phrase ball season, like that's <laughs> not a thing here, but I kind of wish it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so here, ball season starts as, well, theoretically it starts on 11th of November at 11 a.m., uh, 11, 11 minutes. Oh. That's when fushing season starts, and ball season is basically fushing season. But really, ball season is January, February, up until Fat Tuesday. Okay. That's then the end of ball season. I've only been to one real ball. <laughs> They're fun. It's fun, yeah. I've been to many because it's just it's just a thing here. You yeah. Do that. No, I think that's amazing. <laughs> So 1960, apparently it was normal for insurance companies to send out people every month to collect the insurance fee from their clients. Uh, and that was Ilse's job. So on 8th of January, she, she was sent out to collect money and her way also led her to the house in the Florianigasse. She had been there already twice before to collect a fee because there was one person in this house who had an insurance with this specific company and that was Paula, the woman who lived with Johann Rogac. Oh, so Johann knew her? He knew this young woman, Ilse? 
Yes, yes. And Ilse had never returned that day. And because Paula had been seen on the same day, the police first believed that Johann Rogac and Paula had planned to rob Ilse. They knew that she would have money with her. Oh, okay. So the idea was they'd have robbed Ilse and then murdered her and then that Paula had fled Vienna? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. That was the first idea. Sure. But there was also another possibility, because the police pretty soon realized that Johann Rogac was not unknown to the Austrian juridical system. He had spent his early childhood with his parents and siblings in Carinthia, but he started to show problematic behavior as early as six years old. He started stealing and would often get into fights, and at one point his parents were unable to cope with the child any longer, and so he was sent to live in Bavaria. I assume either with a foster family or in a foster home, or more likely, uh, he was sent to a correctional school. Mm. When he grew up, he returned to Corinthia to work as a farmhand, but he couldn't keep a steady workplace. He always caused trouble and he was not liked at all, especially when the farmers found out how he treated the farm animals, which I won't go into any detail here. Yeah, I think that's all the detail we need right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. It won't surprise you that Rogac had been to prison several times uh, for theft, robbery, assault, and lastly, for rape. He had raped a female farmhand and had threatened to stab her if she went to the police. And thank God the woman couldn't be intimidated and she reported him and he was convicted. And he had to spend four years in prison. And there in prison, he liked to talk about rape and murder a lot. Like, a lot. <sighs> about how he would torture women and cut them into little pieces with a sword. It was so much that the fellow inmates were like, you know what? That's too much. <laughs> oh and boy. they informed the warden and the warden declared it to be nothing but, uh, you know, an inmate trying to show off to the other prisoners. Ay, yeah. Who, who are these people? I mean, it's not like this is uncommon in prison, right? We always hear of this. Right, we see yeah. other cases. But also, how fucking bad do you have to be if the other guys in prison are mm. like, dude, enough, like, enough. And he must have then been violent with his girlfriend, Paula, right? It was... Well, yeah, that's also very interesting. So Paula later testified that she had met Rogac through a man named Josef S. And she had offered him a place to stay for a couple of days because he was new in town. But after a couple of days, Rogac showed no sign of leaving or looking for another place to live. And he just stayed with Paula, which, okay, I mean, <laughs> lovely. And she stated that in the beginning, he had been very friendly towards her and her son, but he changed his whole attitude after what she describes as kind of an epileptic seizure. Oh. Which is weird. That I mean, is he had weird. his fantasies and, and he was a cruel person and aggressive person already before. So maybe that was an act? Well, it may be, but also it could be that... It could be that he was already a very violent person, and if if he had a seizure, he could have had, is it frontal lobe damage that would have made his mm. inhibitions lower? So, mm. like, sometimes you may be, That's there's true. probably lots of violent people out there, right, who just never act on it. They know they can't. It's yeah. not socially oh, acceptable, yeah. right? But then it could be true that if he had some sort of seizure, because we know people with head injuries, right, can lose. So same premise. It's it's possible. Yeah. It's possible. There's nothing on records of him having a head trauma. Yeah. It, it would have needed to occur very early in his childhood, right? So well, we, we don't really know. No, but we don't know what seizures do either, is all I'm saying. Like the, we just don't know enough about the brain. So it's possible yeah. that she's, what she's saying is true, that he had some kind of epileptic seizure or other type of seizure event, which seems to have magnified already bad behavior, would you say? Oh, yeah, that's also possible, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we don't know. I don't know. It's she said it was an epileptic seizure, yeah. and from that day on, he was very cruel towards her, and he frightened her with graphic description of what he would like to do to women, especially to his mother. Oof. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and he had only slept her once, uh, according to her own testimony. The day of the murder, he had been extremely lovely to her. He was in a great mood uh, when he took her and her son to the train station. And Rogac even took care of finding the two a place to sit in the train. Mm. So the police arrest him and they start to interrogate him. And I guess Rogac knows that there's no real point in denying what he did. 
at least he pretty soon admits to killing Ilse, but he changes his testimony like all the time, yeah? Mm. So at first he says he did it in a fit of rage because Ilse had complained to him that she had to come over so often and nobody was ever home. She wanted to collect the money, which made him angry and he slapped the back of her neck with his, with his open palm. Oh. And this slap had killed her immediately. That's the open palm thing. I, I think it's very improbable that a single slap would do it, but I think it's theoretically possible because there's something called a rabbit punch, which I think it's an MMA thing. I'm not sure if it's in boxing, but I know they have to be careful not to hit the back of the neck. And I have no idea why I know this or exactly how right I am about this, but I don't think just an open-handed slap would do it, although... These things do happen, don't they? You could have just hit it just in the right way and you could have an internal decapitation, I guess, really. But this man's also a pathological liar, it seems like. So it's hard to... I mean, it's it's definitely possible. Yeah, it's not likely. It's definitely possible for Captain Kirk to do something <laughs> like this. No, but seriously, of course, I think it's possible, but I, I just don't think that's what happened here. I agree. Uh, it doesn't sound plausible. I think if he would have said with uh, with um, the side of his hand, like a karate chop, mm -hmm. I would be like, okay, would make a little bit more sense. But yeah, with uh, just a slap with his open palm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then he says he didn't do it alone. He says that this friend of him, the man named Josef S., who uh, introduced him to Paula, he also works for the horse racing tracks in Vienna. He says that this man was involved. So the police goes to Josef's apartment and they knock and Josef is still super sleepy. He opens the door and the police says, oh, we have to arrest you because uh, because of the murder of Lisa Moshen. And he completely panics. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, He's absolutely shocked because this man had nothing to do with it. He had an airtight alibi. Oh, so why had Johan named him? Because he's a murderer, a rapist, a robber, and uh, a jealous and controlling asshole, apparently. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> According to one of the newspaper articles, this man who introduced him to Paula, he used to be the boyfriend of Paula, and I'm honestly not sure if that was while they were still in a relationship, or if they had been broken off at the time, or if Johann Rogac just thought that he and Paula were in a relationship because he just squatted in the apartment. It's all very... Very vague in the newspaper articles, right? Sure. But Johann Rogers thought that if he has to go to prison, Paula would possibly go back to Josef. And so he wanted an innocent man to go to prison as well. And I mean, apparently this plan was not well thought through. I mean, he probably wasn't the brightest candle if you think about the fact that he placed the body of his victim in the trash cans of the house he worked and lived in. Yeah. But thankfully so. Yeah. Yeah. At least he was caught really quickly. Yeah. So, okay, so Yosef had nothing to do with it. Did Paula have anything to do with it? Or was that was that the reason she had left the city? Or was that just coincidence? No, so after some interrogations, not only of Johann Rogac, but also of everybody else involved, the police had a pretty good idea of what had happened, uh, even though Johann Rogac didn't give up anything voluntarily, right? Ilse had been to the Florianigasse already twice in the previous month to collect the insurance fee from Paula. So Rogac knew the young woman and he knew that she was due to return on 8th of January. Paula had plans to visit her relative but actually wanted to go a couple of days later. But Rogac had insisted that she left already on 8th of January. And when she asked him why she should leave earlier, he could not give her any reason. But she was like, fine... I'm pretty sure she was glad she got out of there. Yeah. So he took her and her son to the train station that morning, and then he went home and he waited. And Ilse Moshner knocked to collect a fee from Paula. Rogac had hit the woman on the head with something sharp and heavy, because the examination of the body had shown a wound on her head, and it's possible that he used a crankshaft as weapon. But not only did he hit her on the head, he also strangled her and... Then he took a knife and stabbed her several times. Hmm. So uh, the cause of death was from bleeding to death. Oh, no. And then he raped her. I'm not sure if that happened after he hit her on the head or after he strangled her or after he stabbed her. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. when he raped her. He, yeah. Yeah. 
Of course, he also took the money Ilse had with her. Then he hid the body in his basement unit. He cleaned the apartment as much as he could. And then he went out to a bar where he did spend an unusual big amount of cash. Mm. So 8th of January 1960 was a Friday and Rogac waited until Sunday because that was the day when nobody was allowed to use the laundry room. And that's when he dismembered the body. He burned most of her belongings and clothes. The police could only find her coat that showed burn marks on it. Around 9pm he took a break from his horrible doings and he went to turn on the hallway lights in the house and to lock the front gate because that was his duty mm. as janitor. It's, I'm so, it's, it's gonna get just worse from... It's a horrible case, I'm yeah. sorry. No, it's always amazing to us, I think, that anyone would ever do the things that we discuss, right? The things that we talk mm. about. And it's sort of why we talk about it, trying to, trying to understand something that most of us will never really be able to understand, but you are doing a great job. I know, <laughs> I know. Thanks. The really bad ones are hard. It's, um, it's hard. Yeah. It keeps getting worse. Okay. Because then he boils some of the body parts, I guess, to remove the flesh. They found burned flesh and flesh in the drain of the laundry room. And he threw what was left into the trash cans, as we know. And over the next day, so from 8th of January until 11th of January, he appeared completely normal to everybody who encountered him. There was just one tenant that said uh, he was extremely friendly, unusually friendly. He had volunteered to carry her Christmas tree down to the basement to get rid of it. Oh, of course he did. He didn't want anybody down in that basement. Mm. Oh, and this... That next part is extremely heartbreaking because when Ilse hadn't returned home that Friday, her dad had tried to find her and the next day after he reported her missing, he had walked most parts of the route uh, she would have taken that day. But he didn't quite make it to the house in the Florianigasse because he had been on his feet all day and he was just too exhausted, so he returned home. It wouldn't have made a difference anyway. And I really hope Ilse's father didn't somehow blame himself. Mm, yeah, you feel, I feel like, you know, he did, you know, we always mm. do. The survivors of, ugh, it's yeah, so sad. Survivor guilt, It's yeah. so sad. So he knew, though, he knew all the places that she would have been to collect the money? Uh, yes, according to sources, he had this job before Ilse, so that's why he knew the, the route by heart. Yeah, Wow. So trial started on 22nd of June 1961 and Johann Rogac pleaded not guilty. He stated that he had been tortured by the investigators and that his confession had been coerced. And of course all of his accusations had been investigated and it's absolutely not believable that this had happened. Plus, what Paula had said about him wanting her to leave early was pretty damning and that shows that he had planned that crime all along, right? Oh, yeah, it does seem like it, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Prosecution then called three different experts for a psychiatric evaluation, and all three came to the conclusion that Rogac was of sane mind and could not use an insanity defense. The experts did describe the murderer as an aggressive and nar narcissistic egocentric with psychopathic tendencies. I mean, of course. Yeah. During the many testimonies, I think they had over 30 witnesses, in the courtroom, he, while the people were giving testimonies, he could be seen sitting there smirking and smiling. No. He even had to leave the courtroom several times because there were some witnesses, especially Ilse's parents and Paula. They just refused to testify with him in the same room. I can't blame them. I'd probably have gone after mm. him if he'd attacked and done that to somebody I loved. Wow. I mean, imagine that you're going to court for the trial of your child's murder and that asshole is sitting there smiling and smirking and staring at you, not breaking eye contact. That kind of happened in a way, in a slightly lesser way. When my when Adam was killed by an elderly driver, she was charged with vehicular homicide. And long story short, we had to go to the trial where she pled guilty to homicide and lost her license. That was it. Mm -hmm. And afterward, when we went out, when we were leaving, um, she stopped me in the, like, outside the courtroom. And she said, don't worry, dear. I'm a widow, too. You'll get over it. Wow. And we had to hold my mom back. My mom went out. My mom with her cane, like, went for her. And we all kind of wish we hadn't now. Wow. Um, yeah, she was, I should say, she was 89. 
And uh, I think she lost her husband in her 80s. So a little bit different than being 28. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. It's not really something you just get over. So I get that a little bit, you know, it's, um, and, and I am in no way comparing the two situations at all, because... No, but having the person who is responsible for the loss telling you yeah. you're gonna get over yeah. it is, that's some fucking audacity yeah. right there. Oh, yeah. Yep. Jesus. Yep. She never apologized. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, that's the thing where it's like, these stories just, oh, they make me so angry when it's like, mm. you know, when there's not really any remorse. Yeah, it's those little details when, when you, when you, yeah. Like, I read those stories or we all read these stories. And if you don't really pause and think about and try to really put your mind in that place. Mm -hmm. Because if you really think about how would you feel if you sit there and that guy keeps smirking and smiling at you after what he did. Well, and especially because, you know, one of the things that I wasn't prepared for, you know, because it was a homicide trial, they went through everything that happened, like the accident and his injuries mm -hmm. and all of that. So yeah. I should have been prepared for that, but I was not. So, you know, these poor people, they're already having to sit through and listen to. And it's the yeah. same with all of these cases that we cover. You know, they have to listen to the worst things they're ever going to hear talked about. And then on top of it, to have the person intentionally responsible for those events be smirking at you i can't even mm. i i yeah i just can't it's these poor people on 30th of june 1961 johan rogac was found guilty for the murder of ilse moschner he was sentenced to life in prison uh, once a week he had to sleep on a hard bed my guess is that means on a wooden board without a mattress or blankets. And every eighth of every month he had to spend in total darkness. The eighth of every month because Ilse had been killed on 8th of January. I really approve of the way your prisons work in that regard. Because on the one hand, they're plush compared to our prisons. But I think some common sense, regular discomfort would make me feel better as a victim's loved one. Does that... Am I a terrible person? Because it's not awful. We don't do that anymore. Oh, you don't? No. Is it too mean? If a verdict like this nowadays would happen, oof, that would be a big scandal. No, would we it? don't do that. That's against human rights. To what? Sleep Not that I say it's wrong yeah. to have somebody sleep on a wooden board for a night or two. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can't do that or anymore. Or to sit in the dark on the day you killed somebody once a month. Yeah, you, because then you can really think about it. Yeah, if you listen to our episode uh, 43 about the murder of Dagmar Furich, yeah. you might remember that her murderer, Josef Weinwurm, he got a similar punishment. He had to sit on the anniversary of her murder in total darkness to think about what he had done. Yes, yeah. I approve. I'm a terrible person, huh? <laughs> I don't think that's such a terrible punishment. No, I it's, don't either. It's darkness for, an, for a for day. For a day. I mean... That's nothing. One day a month? I think that's pretty reasonable. I think so. I think yeah, so. Yeah, but we don't do that anymore. Shame. I have no idea. I have to look into when they stop doing this kind of punishments. Yeah. We've started a petition to bring it back. <laughs> also, if you remember... The murder of Dagmar Furich. Yeah. Uh, Josef Weinwurm, the murderer, he was sent to the most infamous prison in Austria, to Stein. Ah, uh, yeah. Yes, that's where your most high-profile criminals and murderers go, yeah? Stein. Yes, so Josef Weinwurm, Werner Kniesek, uh, and now Johann Rogac. Uh. Of course, he tried to appeal the verdict, but there was no chance in hell that that was overthrown. Yeah. Good. The murder of Ilse Moschner reignited an age-old debate in Austria. Uh, the Austrian parliament tried to reform the juridical system so that a life sentence would actually mean life in prison. Yes. But of course, as we know from later cases that we already covered, like Werner Kniesek, the revision could not be accomplished. So to this day, a life sentence does not mean for life in Austria. But at least uh, we now have the preventive custody that ensures that people who are a danger to society stay locked up. I mean, that is something to be grateful for. But there is that, what they call, it's like truth in sentencing laws, right? It's life in prison should be life in prison. Yeah. It's also in the US, you are sentenced or... Uh, for every crime, if you if you murder five people, you get five times life sentence, for example. Yes. That you can add up. Yes. Or 135 years in prison. We don't have that here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. So the longest sentence here is life sentence, and that's usually uh, after twenty or twenty-five years you. I was just going to say 20 years. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't think that should be the case. And obviously, it has to be a case-by-case basis. And what was yeah. the situation? And is this person actually a danger to the public? Because we have yeah. way too many people in our for-profit prisons who are locked up and not a danger to any society, yeah. you know. But yeah, so is... I mean, do, plus you have this uh, three-strike rule, yeah, which that, is... Yeah. It's, we got a lot to work on. <laughs> is So is Johan likely in prison for the rest of his life, though, do you think? Well, uh, I don't want to give anything away. So listen, this was not the end of Johan Rogac's story. Okay. It was almost the end, but not yet. Because in Stein, he would meet his fate in form of another high-profile inmate. But uh, to be honest, that's something I would love to tell you next week. Well, I'm really going to look forward to that then. <laughs> By the way, I don't have a lot of photos for you this week. I have not one photo of uh, Ilse. I don't have a photo of Rogac. Not even in the newspaper articles. There's just nothing, nothing. I don't know if the family wanted it like this. I have absolutely no idea. The only photo I have is uh, the tools that Rogac used to dismember the body because they can be seen in the Wiener Kriminalmuseum. I mentioned that place already several times. Yeah, that's absolutely one of our stops when I make it to you. If we can ever travel again, we will. We will travel again. So yeah, that's the horrible murder of Ilse Moschner. Thank you. Mm. That was terrible. Yeah. So sad. So, so sad. That was excellent. I would never heard that before. Do you have uh, something good after this? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a few things. Perfect. So my dad and my sister were here this week, which was nice. Um, I bought you something that is probably going to cost more to ship than it was to buy. <laughs> uh, but that's something we just have to accept. But I have started, just started collecting little things for your Christmas box. But I'm trying to be careful and focus more on consumables because I know you're going to be moving. So I'm trying not to add to the crap you have to schlep <laughs> to your new place. Too much, too much. And, oh, I posted in the Facebook group, but Paul absolutely loved the card weight that Sue from Lulubug Jewelry had made for me. I'd mentioned it before, and but I couldn't talk about what it was because it's a gift for Paul, and he sometimes listens. So she made this beautiful weight using Fordite and silver. It's beautiful. But yeah, we had a great time with my dad and sister, even though I had, I had a pretty bad migraine for most of the week on account of the rain. And oh, I think that was Opus. Rain and snow we had. Uh, we had our first snow. Yeah, I love the videos. <laughs> he loves the snow. It says everything you read about Great Danes, it's like, you know, thin coats. They don't like to be outside when it's cold. Not this dog. He's starting to like his jacket, too. You were right. He's starting to get... He was fighting the jacket mm. at first. Told you. And then... Yep, now he's like, actually, this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll take that jacket. <laughs> but it was really nice having Dad and the moose here. Uh, the last, of course, the last day they were here was beautiful, and we had a nice time, and they were they were just a huge help of taking care of Opus when I was laid out. And you have also gone above and beyond this week. So, yeah, my, my something good is my family and friends, and so grateful for you and just my family and all of our listeners who are just the coolest people honestly we yeah. have such a nice that's true just so grateful yeah yeah so how about you anything good this week well look from tuesday on we are going we went into second lockdown <laughs> Which means now we're not allowed uh, out on the street from 8 p.m. to 6 o'clock in the morning. There are several reasons why you are allowed to leave the house, like walking the dogs or running or running errands or helping somebody, whatever. It is what it is. Yeah, we, we're going to get of through course, it. Yeah. And I think what I'm grateful for and what's something good is that not a lot changes for me because... I used to be a big party girl, but nowadays, uh, anyway, I love to stay at home. And I have my dogs, <laughs> and they cuddle up next to me, and it's it's just, everything's good. Everything's gonna be fine. In the end, it is everything's gonna be fine. It is, it is, it is. It is. <laughs> How is that saying? Was right. it Oscar Wilde? I think it was Oscar Wilde, right? Uh, it's going Which to thing? be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end yet, or something like that. Something similar. Oh, maybe. Mm. All right. 
So please, if you have a moment, we would love it if you could leave us a very quick review. It really does help other people to find us. You can come say hello on Instagram and uh, our, we're kind of on the tweeters, but not so much. We're more Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. We have a Facebook group. Just search Fresh Hell Murder. It's a really lovely, we love you group of people. Hi, friends. And we are there. Sometimes people come in and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't think you guys would be That's on the page. True. Yeah, we're there. Hey. Every day. Um, Every day we're there. <laughs> uh, it's actually the easiest way to communicate with the listeners. It is. It's great. I love it. I'm trying to be good with answering emails. I know sometimes I'm. it takes some time. I'm, I apologize, but I'm reading all the emails and I'll, uh, I'm trying to answer everything on time. I should start going through emails. I get afraid because you do all of the emails for like doing our promo swaps with yeah. other shows or if people are buying ads and I'm now I'm terrified. I feel like I'm turning into my parents now where it's like, I don't know how to do the email. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to click the thing and it'll be gone forever. I think we can uh, we can do it like this. I'm going to set up um, like a folder where I put in the emails from our listeners and you just go there and answer these emails. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We've done that before for other things. Yeah. I'm just afraid I'll ruin it. No, it's going to be fine. It's a skill of mine. <laughs> you say that now, just so you wait. But uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who listens. What else? I'm trying to do all the stuff at the end so you don't have to talk anymore. Patreon. Patreon. Yep, you can go to our website, uh, freshhellpodcast.com, and that will have a link to everything you need. You can also just go to patreon.com and search Fresh Hell Podcast and you can support us in that way. Tell a friend, share in your favorite episode on your own social media. What else? Is that it? Did we cover everything? Uh, yes, and please tell your dogs, cats, guinea pigs, rats, axolotls, <laughs> wallabies, uh, <laughs> uh, squirrels. Um, yep. All of them. All of them. Tell them hi. Tell them we love them. You know, you know the drill. You know how it works. You do. <laughs> they know. They know. And if you yourself, like so many of us are right now, are going through hell, keep going. Cheers. See you next week. <laughs>